You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, when you gave your sight, you made it clear that it was for our salvation. And that not only was it for that, but also it was the Son King who brought with him and gave to us the Spirit that you speak about in John and in other places. But Lord, as we look down through the years, we see how this has been misused and misunderstood. So as we go through this new section of Scripture, where Paul deals specifically with the aspects of the Holy Spirit, the gifts. I pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, and humility as we understand that you have given us all we need to live godly in Christ Jesus indeed in this area as well. And so this morning, thank you for what you're going to teach us, and we look to find ways and to be about the business of glorifying you in everything we do, including in our administering and living out the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And thank you in Jesus' name. So we're about to go into the funnest section of the best book of the Bible. Pardon me? There's 66, and when I give you the next one, I will be the best. Right here, this is the best. This is gold. We're going to be reading through, I, what I'd like to do first this morning is um, read through chapter 12, the whole chapter. And... We'll be taking it a bit of a time today, I doubt, we should get through the introduction. Um, we have three interesting chapters to spend time in that address much of what is happening. Well, so all the scripture addresses what's happening today. But as I was studying, at least for the uh, introduction, I discovered and, and reaffirmed that the Corinthians were experts at fouling things up. And... Uh, Paul patiently and carefully de- deals with their, their misunderstanding and the misapplication of his earlier teaching to them. And so it is, and so should we, as we run across these things in modern Christianity. We should be patient and kind, considerate, but firm. And we will have some, we were going, we're going to have some uh, presuppositions that we will use when we get to this section, which are the same presuppositions we have throughout study of the Bible and throughout life, there is a God. He rewards those who faithfully serve Him, and He is worth serving. But some other presuppositions as well. The scripture, for example, is enough. It is more than enough. We need nothing else added to it to be able to come to the conclusions that God has designed to this plan into our lives. And uh, there will be many other things. Some we will deal with in the introduction. Some we will deal with as we get to them. So let's start by reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And remember, now Paul has been asked, this chapter 7, he reminded, he reminded the Corinthians that he was going to get to the questions that they asked him. This was apparently one of those questions. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking... By the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say 
Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of the tongues, of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, as, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less, any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts, of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will, sh and I show you still the more excellent way. So, chapter twelve uh, is again the beginning of an answer that Paul was asked by the Corinthians, where he says, now about now concerning the things about which you wrote. So this is one of the things that he's answering. So he starts this chapter off familiarly. familiarly. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, he says, the next three chapters deal with the concept of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were misusing and misapplying this as well. Chapter 12 can be considered an introduction with general instruction regarding the gifts. Chapter 13 is a theological interlude that was probably, at least in my intention, in my understanding, intended to at once chastise and encourage the Corinthians in the proper use of spiritual gifts under the control of love. 
Chapter 14 has specific observations and it corrections. And so that's kind of how it's laid out as it, as it appears. In chapter 12, Paul begins to correct, but he starts with an introduction of information that most certainly had been given before. He describes the varieties of the gifts, reminding the Corinthians that this variety was provided by one Lord and one God. The gifts were given to strengthen and to provide for the common good of the body. In this chapter, Paul begins to utilize the metaphor of the body. He moves through the description to itemization of the gifts and then reminding the Corinthians that all of the gifts that God has distributed to the body of Christ are important. All of them. They all have their uses, their glories, and their theology. Some of the questions that we'll be answering throughout this next section are, can Satan counterfeit the gifts? What are the spiritual gifts? How many spiritual gifts are there? Does every believer have a spiritual gift? How can a person know which gifts he or she has? How important are gifts to the Christian living in the life? How, how important are the gifts to Christian living in the life of the church? What is the baptism of the Spirit and how does it relate to the spiritual gifts? Are the gifts given for every age of the church or were some given only for a special purpose in a limited time? Can the gifts be counterfeited by people? If so, how do believers discern the truth from the false? Those are some of the questions. Paul answers these questions throughout this section of the epistle. Um, the Corinthians were apparently very rich in spiritual gifts, but they did not understand them, and they were irresponsible in their use. More harm than good was coming from the gifts, and this is what Paul seeks to correct in these next three chapters. Anytime something the Lord has given to us for our benefit is misused, it will result in damage. And that itself should be an indicator that something has gone awry. It is important to recognize that for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, the pagans and the mystery religions provided counterfeits of the spiritual gifts. And much of what was happening in the Corinthian church, let me grab it real quickly. This, uh, even my phone so it doesn't talk to us. Much of what was happening in the uh, Corinthian church was caused by the infiltration of these false ideas into the body of Christ. This had started in Babel. Um, for various, from various ancient sources, it seems that Nimrod's wife, Semiramis I, apparently was a high priestess of the Babel religion and the founder of the mystery religions. After the tower was destroyed and the multiplicity of languages developed, she was worshipped as a goddess under many different names. She became Ishtar of Syria, Astarte of Phoenicia, Isis of Egypt, Aphrodite of Greece and Venus of Rome, in each case the deity of sexual love and fertility. Her son, Tammuz, also came to be deified under various names and was the consort of Ishtar and god of the underworld. According to the cult of Ishtar, Tammuz was conceived by a sunbeam, a counterfeit version of Jesus' virgin birth. Tammuz corresponded to Baal in Phoenicia, Osiris in Egypt, Eros in Greece, and Cupid in Rome. In every case, the worship of these gods and goddesses was associated with sexual immorality. The celebration of Lent, for example, has no basis in scripture, but rather developed from the pagan celebration of Semiramis mourning for 40 days over the death of Tammuz in, uh, before his alleged resurrection, another of Satan's mythical counterfeits. From the mythical, from the mystery religions have also come the ideas of baptismal regeneration, which implies that one can be born again simply by being water baptized, mutilation, flagellation, and basic asceticism to atone for your own sins. 
pilgrimages, paying a penance for forgiveness of sins for oneself and for others, one which was considered to be one of the highest expressions of a religious experience. This, and we'll talk about ecstasy in a minute here. It seemed supernatural and it was often bizarre, and it was greatly sought after because of its appeal. Um, since the Holy Spirit has performed many miraculous works through the apostles, it was only natural for Satan to counterfeit those works. The wisdom-oriented, the wisdom-oriented Corinthians apparently had mistaken these practices of ecstasy and the false wonders with the true works of the apostles. When someone experienced the ecstatic, the results of ecstatic worship of false deities, they were supposed to be on a higher level than the average person. These ecstatic rites could include things such as drunkenness, out-of-body trances, euphoric feelings of oneness with the supposed god or goddess, and often unrestrained sexual orgies. What paganism is? And this is where there's a lot of these false activities originated, if not all of them, and, and made their way into the church in Corinth. Paganism is the ancestral religion of the whole of humanity. And I got this from paganism.com. So it's probably, <laughs> I was just laughing. I shouldn't, I mean, everything is covered on the internet. And, and I cross-referenced it with some encyclopedias, and, and uh, so what you're going to get is direct from the, from the satyr's mouth what paganism is. They venerate nature. The spirit of place is recognized in pagan religion, whether as personified natural features such as a mountain, lake, or spring, or as a fully, fully articulated guardian divinity such as, for example, Athena, the goddess of Athens. The cycle of the natural year with the different emphasis brought by its different seasons is seen by most pagans as a model of spiritual growth and renewal. It is a sequence marked by festivals which offer access to different divinities according to their affinity with different times of the year. Many pagans see the earth itself as sacred. You've probably heard the worship of Gaia. That's, and these are all things that would have been underlying some of the false teaching that had crept into the Corinthian church and indeed is in the modern church in some places. <laughs> Many pagans see the earth itself as sacred. In ancient Greece, the earth was always offered the first libation of wine, although she had no priesthood and no temple. Polytheism. Pluralism and diversity. The many deities of paganism are a recognition of the diversity of nature. Some pagans see the goddess, goddesses and gods as a community of individuals, much like the diverse human community in this world. Others, such as followers of Isis and Osiris, from ancient times onwards, and Wiccan-based pagans in the modern world see all the goddesses as one great goddess, and all the gods as one great god, whose harmonious interaction is the secret of the universe. They worship one most heavily called the goddess. Pagan religions all recognize the feminine face of divinity. Are we seeing that today? Where they're trying to retranslate the scripture and remove genders? Would you think maybe this underlies some of the gender confusion in the world today? False theology has bad results, always. And those results are like the ripples in a pond. They will go out and they will affect many, many areas of life. Um, some pagan paths, such as the cult of Odin or Amithras, offer exclusive allegiance to one male god, but they do not deny the reality of other gods and goddesses as, non, as monotheists do. This was from their website. This is how they look at um, polytheism, goddesses and gods, and etc. New Testament Corinth had inculcated many of these ancient pagan practices into their church life. They probably had heard from Peter of the miraculous events of Pentecost. 
They knew the prophecy of Joel that God would pour out his spirit on the young men and women who would dream dreams and prophecy. The epistle to the Corinthians was likely one of the earliest written epistles of the New Testament, but by the time it was written, Satan had already counterfeited the church in the church the gifts of the Spirit and had confused many of the believers. The immature thought theology of the Corinthian church apparently allowed that anything supernatural must come from God. Wrong. We'll see that again and again throughout this, this teaching. They did not use discernment, and Paul spends the next three chapters directly and indirectly teaching the Corinthians how to have proper discernment regarding the issue of spiritual gifts. He will teach them what the true fruits of the spirits are, the spirit are, and they are not babbling, language, falling down, trembling, shouting ecstatically, dancing, or any other of the manifestations of the pagan religions, but they are, as mentioned in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, special self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Because the tendency to misuse and misunderstand of the gifts of the Spirit has come down through the ages, resulting in various and sundry issues within the body of Christ, we should set some principles down as we prepare to go through these passages, through these chapters. Yes, Gene. So you're talking about the, uh, the, the, the governments of Iraq and, and uh, yeah. in the Middle East? ISIS has come up and it's fighting. They're shooting. But they're killing everybody. Right. They made it very beautiful. So I just wanted to get some connection. I have thought about that. I think that the acronym ISIS is a coincidence that it is the same as the name of a goddess. But, but the results of the false theology are part and parcel of what's going on with that. Any comments on that? Anybody else think that, that maybe that's a, a direct relation? Direct? I mean, I, I can't see that for sure, but it just occurred to me as I was looking at this that that was just a coincidence. It's an acronym to describe... Uh, uh, I've forgotten what it stands for, but it, it has to do with the governments of Iraq and uh, Assyria. Yeah, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Also called Isaac, yes. So, but the false theology is certainly a result, has resulted in, in, in a, a religion that thinks killing people is a good thing if they don't agree with you. <laughs> We should set some principles down as we prepare to go through these few chapters. As we happen upon specific as we happen upon specific misapplications, we will deal with them. But a couple of things must be set down at the beginning. Beginning first, what are we going to use as our authority? Will it be the Word of God, or will it be our experience? The two do not mix as as a basis for theology. Jesus said in John 17, 17, he said, Sanctify them in thy truth. Their experience is their truth. Did he say that? Remember the break? You got a break ready to throw at me? Sanctify them in thy truth. 
Your word is truth. The growth in grace cannot be obtained through an experience. Growth, true growth in grace cannot be obtained through an experience. It will come through to, through this, to us through submission to and proper application of biblical theology. That is scripture. The Corinthians, and by extension, everybody who suffers through this today, some charismatic offshoots ex insist that experiences define us and our theology should accommodate that. There are very few ideas more dangerous than this. From this basis today, we have churches, churches teaching ideas such as ongoing prophecy, words of wisdom, speaking in tongues, faith healing, and other manifestations of not only the counterfeits, but the pagan religions of the time. So for our purposes, we will evaluate every event through the lens of revealed truth as held in the Bible. Now, this is nothing new, but for the purposes of understanding how we're going to deal with the next two chapters and all chapters that we have ever dealt with, it's just, I think it's important to get this right out in the open for whoever's listening online as well. We will evaluate every event through the lens of revealed truth held in the Bible. We will not try to accommodate scripture to whatever we have experienced. This will be our format for studying through all sections, but especially this section. Along with this idea is one of the concepts that we will use as a foundational concept. The idea that revelation has ceased. Revelation has ceased. It is done. When, when, and, and I picture in my mind John closing the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and with that, what God had to say was finished, was done. All we need, everything we need to evaluate, to live, to be, is held right here. We need nothing else. <laughs> and, and for those who aren't looking, I held up by So let's look at Jude chapter 1, verse 3. We'll look at a couple of scriptures. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I testify, John said, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone asks to them, God will add to him the plates which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. This is not held in many charismatic circles today. It is not held, it was not held in Corinth. It was not held in Corinth. Indeed, many of them believe that Revelation continues whether they directly say it or not. One of the leading voices in years past has said this, the Bible truly has become a fellow witness to God's present activity. That's an amazing statement. When you say that the Bible is a fellow witness to God's present activity, you mean that it is not alone. There is somebody else there witnessing as well. This man goes on. If someone today perhaps has a vision of God of Christ, it is good to know that it has happened before. If one has a revelation from God, to know that for the early Christians, revelation also occurred in the community. If one speaks of, thus says the Lord, and dares to address the fellowship in the first person, even going beyond the words of Scripture, this was happening long ago. How strange and remarkable it is. If one speaks in the fellowship of the Spirit, the word of truth, it is neither his thoughts and reflections nor simply some exposition of Scripture, for the Spirit transcends personal observations, however interesting or profound they may be. The Spirit, as living God, moves through and beyond the records of past witness, however, such, however valuable such records are, as a model for what happens today. This person believes that the Bible is not our final source of God's revelation, but is simply a witness to a new and exciting revelations, to new and exciting revelations that are coming today. 
This is tantamount to saying that Christians can act to the Bible today and that they can accept other editions as normal. A different method of interpretation is positive, sometimes even unconsciously. One commentator on the charismatic movement said this, the age of models has come. A model takes the place of a law. Models are human perceptions of truth. They are tentative and thus subject to change as new data becomes available. These models are open and constantly tested. No scientist dares claim any longer that one model is the way to explain all known phenomena for fear that some newly discovered data will prove that scientist to be a precipitant old fool. The world of science has progressed from the old approach. Closed systems to a new approach, open systems. And there are all kinds of new models. If the Bible is a closed system of truth with no new revelation being given through inspired prophets or apostles, then the model approach is an erroneous and dangerous tool in hermeneutics. There should be no confusion in this area. The orthodox preach teaching of Christianity has always affirmed that God's special saving revelation to mankind is restricted to the teaching of the scriptures. That is the issue. If the Bible is complete, then it represents a closed system of truth. If it entails a fixed and absolute standard of truth, then the teaching of scripture must be ascertained and dogmatically asserted. If God is still granting new revelation, then the truth of God is still being progressively revealed. And if this were the case, our duty would be to faithfully listen to today's prophets as they unravel God's truth and new and clear representations that we find in Scripture. Few Christians really consider the subtleties of today's prophets spelled incorrectly. Yeah. Good point. Today's prophets as an improvement upon the sanctifying truths given in the Word. And this commentator said, I certainly do not. What is inspired? What is it in? So, for our purposes and for the purposes of orthodoxy and all the Christian churches that teach it, the scripture is a closed, is a closed book. What God had to offer ended with the book of Revelation. As far as written truth, justice. Yeah, uh, James, I, I have a prophetic word. Obviously. You do? <laughs> we have someone to interpret that. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you, you very well may, may uh, bring this out, and I, so I hope I'm not uh, jumping the gun here. But oh, please it, do. It, it might be helpful to, as you're, uh, to distinguish between the terms revelation and illumination. Yes. And uh, a lot of people get those confused. You're exactly right. Revelation is closed. Because that's the revealing of new information that's not already in, uh, already recorded in Scripture. That's done. It's closed. Closed canon. Closed system. Uh, so when you hear somebody say, "Well, I got revelation on this," no, you really didn't. What what may have happened is illumination. Right. And that is happening today. When that's one of the the Holy Spirit's roles in our lives to illumine the meaning of what's already recorded. It is the tool of sanctification. Yes. So it, you know, it actually the scripture is the tool, the illumination of the scripture in individual lives as you become more and more aware of your sinfulness, your need for Christ, and how the scripture applies to your life, and how you can be free from sin, and how you can live a godly life. That's illumination. But you're teaching, we don't need it. God has presented us and given us everything we need. And we've talked about illumination and revelation before, but it's good to bring it back up. Thank you, Justin. What is inspiring? Is it just the Bible, or is it every new revelation that comes along from somebody who believes they have received a word from the Lord? 
As usual, scripture is very precise and concise. The word inspired as used in scripture comes from the Greek term that actually means in the context of 2 Timothy, God breathed. It means that God breathed this out. <laughs> and we can go through, uh, referring to divine inspiration and the uh, reading of scripture, which is in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's likely, it's possibly a term coined by Paul it expresses the sacred nature of the scriptures, their divine origin, and their power to sanctify believers. <laughs> Thus we see that the manuscript of scripture did not have its life breathed into it by God, and thus modern prophets can have their words imbued with divine sanctity. Rather, the scripture is not just the words of men into which God breathes some kind of divine life. It is the very breath of God. Scripture is God himself speaking. I dare say the rumblings that came from the Corinthians and those same ruminations that emanate from so-called prophets today are not so. Uh, one teacher put it this way. Still prophets on again. The truth is, one many, the truth is what many people seem to misunderstand. Inspiration does not mean the Bible contains God's revelation. It does not mean gems of revealed truth are concealed in Scripture. It does not mean men wrote God's truth in their own words. It does not mean God merely assisted the writers. It means that the words of the Bible are the words of God himself. Every word was breathed out by God. Thus it behooves us to recognize <coughs> that the canon of Scripture is closed. Prophecy is done. New revelations are false revelations. Returning to Jude chapter 3. We see that this book makes clear what the faith that we have delivered to us once and for all was complete in that delivery. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, which was once for all, handled, handed down to the saints. Jude appealed to the believers of that day to contend earnestly for the faith, which means that there is one and only faith, the faith. Paul allows in Galatians 1.23 that though he presented the church before, he is now preaching, that though he persecuted the church before, he is now preaching the faith. Article, the faith. He tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Timothy that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. This use of that term was common in apostolic times. The second important observation about this verse is the phrase, once for all. This is a translation of the Greek word, hapax which means something done for all time with lasting results, never needing repetition. One commentator put it this way, he said, the Christian faith is unchangeable, which is not to say that men and women of every generation do not need to find it, experience, and live it, but it does mean that every new doctrine that arises, even though its legitimacy may be plausibly asserted, is a false doctrine. All claims to convey some additional revelation to that which has been given by God in this body of truth are false claims and must be rejected. Scripture is the test of everything, and it is the final word on everything. The third important word in Jude chapter 3 is the word delivered or handed down. It is a Greek heiress passive participle, and as such is an act complete in the past with no continuing element. In the passive voice, it indicates that the faith was not discovered by man, but was given to men by God. And he did that in one way, through his word. The Bible, Scripture, is final and complete. In it we have everything that God intended for men to know about himself. 
We have every doctrine necessary to understand him, and we have every teaching necessary to give us the tools in the Holy Spirit to understand doctrine, teaching, receive correction and instruction, and live our lives. Everything we do is subject to scripture. It is our standard. Our faith rests on historical, objective revelation. Therefore, there are no new inspired prophecies, seers, or other forms of new revelation until God speaks again at the return of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, he says, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bondslaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in Revelation chapter 1, all the way from verse 1 through 13, we'll read that. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth. These are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Though these have the power to shut up the sky, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their dead bodies for three and a half days. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And then, then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Even 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Those are specific, clear prophecies of the end times. Not spiritualized away. But specific, clear prophecies. God gave those so that it would be evident when we were in those times. Thus we see that the faith was once for all delivered to us, and at the end of the New Testament era, the churches gathered the canon together and published it, and this is our Bible. Let there be no confusion that the once for all delivered faith can be modified. It cannot. When brethren meet together and are filled with the Spirit and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, these psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms are not in Revelation. They are often commentary on Scripture, and indeed they may actually be Scripture for, when the, for example, when the psalms are sung. But that is all. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And 2 Peter 2, 1, for no prophecy was ever made 
by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So with this as our, as our foundation and our introduction and noting that as we look at the specific gifts, many of which are counterfeited, misused, or misunderstood both in Corinth and in the church today, we will dig into those and find out what God truly intended for them. Now I finished a little bit early in case there were questions over our, our choice. Yes, um, So the Jew in Revelation, those didn't exist at the time Correct. Um, so is that significant in our understanding of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what he's saying to us today? Is there, is there, going to be a, is there a difference then because scripture wasn't complete at that time? Um, so you reference the revelation right. is done Which for them for them at that point. Is that, is that significant in our understanding? The significance will be found in the consistency that we will see through studying 1 Corinthians as we relate it to books that were written later on. The apostles taught the same thing. All of them taught the same things. The gospels actually, I think, I'd have to look at the timeline, but I think one of the gospels was written later. In the first Corinthians, maybe all of them are in the first Corinthians. I don't know the time I have to look. But what we will find is a consistency in the teaching. So uh, I, I guess I'm not quite clear if Jude and Revelation both talk about not adding and recognizing that the, that, uh, the faith was once for all delivered. Well, they would have written that after that delivery had been pretty much complete. John, for sure, it was pretty much done. But uh, Jude would have been would have written his epistle after most of that delivery was pretty much complete. And so what we will find as we study this and make cross references, we'll find that they they clearly agree with each other. So, Jim, we have uh, to crystallize. I think Jason's question. Uh, the question is: If these men say that Revelation was finished, and yet Revelation was continuing to be given, doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Is oh, that kind of where you're getting at, Jason. Well, just at just the timing, because Corinthians at the time Corinthians was written, Revelation was still being given. Right. So is that significant in understanding that maybe the, the way that it could be applied at the very time that it was written specifically for the Corinthians gotcha. would be different in in some aspects to what it means for us today because scripture was not complete then. But it is complete now. Right. There were guidelines as to who was authorized to present their writings, their speaking, the scripture, Jim. To answer the question that I just raised, um, I think that I would say that all of the apostles knew that they were the instruments of scripture. Yes. Paul knew that Luke was an inspired writer. Peter knew that Paul was an inspired yes. writer. They, they, even Paul spoke of his own writings as scripture. And so all of those apostles expected that God was giving a revelation at that time. None of them would have known the full extent of how that much that would be. But I believe that it would be safe to say that Paul and Peter, um, yeah, certainly those two, for, those two for sure, and whoever the writer of Hebrews was, that they would have known that that time of revelation would come to an end. So they could speak of that body of truth, even though none of them would have been able to give a full list of all the New Testament books. They would have been able to speak of that body of truth, that revealed truth, which we call the New Testament, as being delivered to us even while the delivery was going on. And there were, there were parameters. You, you had to be an apostle or a, a, an accompaniment of the apostles like Luke and Mark were uh, to, to write. And what they did is they actually were amanuensis secretaries for the apostles and for uh, 
uh, the history of the time. So once that period closed, when the apostles passed from the scene, revelation ceased. And they were part and parcel of what was being given as revelation. They were God's instruments for revelation. And that's that's very clear. Uh, and we're especially early on in Acts where when they went to replace one of the, uh, they went to replace uh, Judas. And they had some, they had some uh, I don't have them right here in front of them, but they had some qualifications. And one of them had to be a person who was with the Savior, who, who spent time with him, who was in his company. Uh, that was one of the requirements. And I wasn't... Uh, Matthias, I think, was one of them, was the man who replaced. But God, in his own economy, had Jesus meet Paul on the road to Damascus, and that qualified Paul, because he was in the company of the Savior. So, yes, and as Jim has pointed out, they wouldn't have known. They didn't have a, a national archive where all these things were sent to and, and archived and, and given information to each other. Oh, yeah, Peter wrote this, don't you repeat that. The Holy Spirit orchestrated all that. So while it was being written, yes. Would, it sounds like there would be some confusion, but there wouldn't be. The remarkable thing is that while it was being written, the Holy Spirit oversaw it, and they all wrote in agreement with one another and in substantive support of one another, um, using the same truths throughout the entire period of time. Does that help? Yeah, it just was a looking at it. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I did expect a few more. He talks about the end of Revelation where he says, anybody who acts the book, how do you separate the book of Revelation from the whole Bible? <laughs> I don't believe that he was talking about the entire Bible, although it applies. It, it applies. True, but it, right. He was talking about Revelation. But the, the, the Spirit of God applies that to the Scripture. Throughout understanding how the canon of scripture was, was, was gathered, um, the fact that only those who were in the company of the Savior, the apostles, would write scripture. Once the last of them died, scripture was closed. And so after that, anybody who adds to any of that, the canon of scripture, would, would be anathema. What was it say? It would be. Well, I don't have that right here in front of me. That's. Yeah, they'd add the plagues to his add the plagues and take away the, the life. So, so no, he was talking about Revelation, but the, but the application is to the entire content of Scripture. Because once the canon closed, once all the apostles were gone from the scene, there was no more Revelation. Justin? Yeah, just to, just to throw out a term that you may come across from time to time, uh, we refer to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, which simply means that uh, and as you were just saying, all of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is equally inspired, equally authoritative. So it, it's kind of like the mathematical principle. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And so if you add to one book, it's tantamount to adding to them all because they're all equally inspired, equally authoritative. So it's the... Uh, if you ever come across that term, verbal, plenary inspiration. Okay. Did you hear that? Um, other questions? I think it was from the implications of the world that this concept of closure has been long since talked about all the counseling and canonization process. And to say otherwise, there's a nice long established concept. Yeah, the canon of scripture has been asserted since 
the third century. Second century? Second or third century? Yeah. Through the process that they used to gather the books. And, and I was thought about going through the canon and how that, and we can't, we can do that. Maybe next week I'll bring something about how the canon was come across, how the canon was finalized, and the procedure that was followed, and what we have today. Okay. There's a series Lamb is pointing out called God Book Book that covers the canon of scripture, how it was come to. Any other questions? Yeah. So as we go through chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, if you have a question, of course, always answer the that ask it. This will be uh, an interesting study. There was a lot going on in Corinth at the time, and a lot of a lot of false theology that had crept into the church already since Paul had given them the initial teaching. And it's, it's so we have today nothing on what was going on in the first century Corinth. But it will be interesting to see the corollaries, the similarities, and uh, how the Word of God can deal with those difficulties. So, there's no other questions or questions. But... Father, we thank you that you have made your Word clear to us, and you have given us your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts so that we might know how to live godly in Christ Jesus. As we study through this section, um, a lot of it applies to today in ways that some others of Scripture may or may not. But uh, you know how that is. You know what to bring forth. So we ask you to do that. We ask you to clear our minds and help us to understand what you have for us in these days regarding the gifts of the Spirit, which indeed is nothing different than it's ever been in the entire history of the church. They are to bring us together. They are to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to um, preach the gospel. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.